The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hi, my name is Michael Wang. I'm a neurosurgeon at the University of Miami who only does spine surgery. And I'm Sigurd Bourbon. Uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I uh, work at the University of California in San Francisco. So today in this NAS chat, uh, we wanted to cover briefly the topic of PJK or proximal junctional kyphosis. And let me start by asking you, Sig, I mean, what do you think is the true incidence or prevalence of this problem? I mean, we hear about it a lot. What's been your experience in that? No, Mike, I think proximal junctional kyphosis is really part of a broader spectrum of adjacent segment pathologies. And uh, whether it be uh, lumbar degenerative pathology or, or deformity, what happens to our adjacent segments? I think we've got some very uh, good evidence with regard to long-term follow-up in a lumbar spine. When we speak specifically to proximal junctional kyphosis, I think a lot of the recent literature has focused on adult deformity. And uh, to sort of focus in that area, and in the realm of adult deformity surgery, uh, this is a significant problem. Uh, when we think about radiographic junctional kyphosis, then we might be seeing that in 30 to 40 percent of our fusions from either the thoracolumbar junction or from the upper thoracic spine down to the sacrum. Uh, that's a significant problem or significant prevalence radiographically. And the subset of these cases that are symptomatic, uh, or the subset of these cases that uh, might require revision surgery is a relatively smaller subset. And that's been reported uh, from anywhere from one to 2% to 12 to 15% of cases actually requiring a revision surgery. So when we think about the durability of surgery, long fusions for adult deformity, this then becomes really the primary reason for revision surgery is, is what happens at the proximal junction. Especially wow, so that's the number one reason you're revising a def adult deformity then. Yeah, if we look at a, a large series of adult deformity cases, uh, the reasons that, that these cases might undergo revision uh, can include infection, can include uh, non-union or symptomatic implant failure, uh, can include neural deficits, but the, the single most common reason in many series is pathology at the proximal junction. Wow, and how, like there's this terminology of proximal junctional kyphosis and then proximal junctional failure. And I, I struggle sometimes with the definition of what it really means. Can you tell me a little more about how you look at that? Yeah, Mike, I think that's an important distinction, the idea of these uh, uh, junctional pathology occurring along a spectrum. And uh, <coughs> junctional kyphosis, I think the generally accepted uh, definition from that comes from work, some work that was done by Watanabe and a group out of U University of Washington, suggesting that uh, 10 degrees of uh, kyphosis at the proximal adjacent level compared to the preoperative status at 10 degrees of change would be a radiographic evidence of junctional kyphosis. And again, that gives us numbers in the range of 30 to 40%. When we do a long fusion to the sacrum, 30 40% of these cases having that degree of radiographic junctional failure, or junc junctional uh, kyphosis. Now transitioning to when uh, do we classify a junctional kyphosis as a failure, again, uh, several different definitions. We might say that more than 30 degrees would be a failure. Uh, in general, I consider a failure a need for revision surgery. That's clear evidence of failure. And that need for revision surgery may be related to the magnitude of the junctional kyphosis. It might also be related to the appearance of neural symptoms. So there might be uh, 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 some translation or some neural compression, uh, or obviously pain might be a reason for revision surgery. So a failure then would be a uh, change at the proximal junction that may cause symptoms and require revision surgery. And can it happen, I mean, we know the thoracolumbar junction and upper thoracic spine, can it happen in the lumbar spine too? 
Well, absolutely. Um, in general, uh, many of the, much of what we've written about junctional kyphosis has been uh, trying to make a distinction between what happens when we fuse from the thoracolumbar junction down to the sacrum versus uh, going from the upper thoracic spine down to the mm -hmm. sacrum. Those are the distinctions, and that's where we see our highest rates of problem. But in terms of the lumbar spine, uh, again, the subset we're looking at are patients refused down to the sacrum because mm -hmm. that gives us a firm distal endpoint uh, and to some extent uh, increases the force at the proximal segments. So we can see junctional kyphosis in a construct from uh, L2 to the sacrum, L1 to the sacrum. And in fact, if we look at rates of junctional kyphosis, T9, T10, T11, T12, L1, the proximal instrumented vertebra really there's not a single level that's reliably mm. protective against this yeah. in a long fusion, a fusion more than five segments. Very interesting. And, and there's also distal junctional kyphosis too, right? Yeah, that's a, a very important uh, distinction. <clears throat> so a lot of the research and uh, publications we're seeing or we've written now in proximal junctional kyphosis uh, is based on a subset of patients refused to the sacrum. So patients with uh, long fusion and instrumentation uh, down to the sacrum, generally with pelvic fixation, and we're looking at what happens at the proximal segment. So we've got a relatively uh, isolated area for mobility or for adjacent level problems. But again, putting this into the broader context of what happens at the adjacent levels, uh, certainly if we fuse short of the sacrum, a long fusion down to L5, for example, uh, there's a lot of evidence for subsequent advanced disc degeneration, mm -hmm. which would be the perhaps most mild form of, uh, of uh, distal junctional problem, to uh, failure at the uh, junctional segments. So, so fusing short of the sacrum, we're always concerned about uh, distal junctional failure. And I'd add to that, especially in uh, the subset of patients where, uh, for example, we're correcting a thoracic kyphosis, Sherman's mm -hmm. disease, for example, we've seen rates of distal junctional failures up to 20%. Wow. Uh, cervical thoracic kyphosis, I know you do a lot of work in that area, uh, uh, stopping at uh, C7 versus T1 versus T2, is there reliably a protective level? Not that we've been able to mm -hmm. show. And distal junc junctional uh, complications in these cases, uh, 20 to 30%, so rivaling what we're seeing in PJK. Wow. So now we know that the strategies for fixing the problem might include surgery, for example, extension of fusion. But what are you doing now in your practice? Because I know you do a lot of deformity surgery to prevent. What, what surgical maneuvers or, uh, or types of things are you using to, to minimize the, the risk of this terrible problem? Yeah. So we've, we've defined this as a problem that's got a significant prevalence, uh, has a significant impact. Uh, again, 10, 12 percent of cases requiring revision. And so what are our preventive strategies? And I think that uh, there's not a single uh, answer there. I think in general, most of us are trying to apply a multimodal uh, approach. I think uh, the number one preventive strategy is to try and have a surgical plan uh, that's appropriate for the individual patient. And what I mean by that is uh, uh, getting our uh, lumbar lordosis well-matched to the pelvic incidence, but recognizing some factors that perhaps in an older patient, we don't want to overcorrect the older patient. Uh, recognizing a patient with osteoporosis or perhaps long-straining deformity, that an overcorrection might be problematic. So surgical planning, I think, is number one, is, is getting an appropriate correction for the individual patient. Uh, I think the number two area is with regard to, uh, again, preoperative preparation. So surgical planning was number one. Uh, trying to optimize bone density, 
try and optimize health, try and optimize strength of the extensor muscles. In patients with neuromuscular problems especially, clearly a high incidence of junctional kyphosis there. Really working on uh, preoperative therapy and strengthening, uh, so important, and perhaps more important than anything we could do preoperatively is, is an appropriate surgical strategy and optimizing extensor strength and optimizing uh, um, uh, what's appropriate for the individual patient. In terms wow. of intraoperative strategies, I'll, I'll just complete this briefly then. Intraoperative strategies, uh, a lot about cement augmentation of the upper instrument vertebra as well as the upper instrument vertebra plus one. Uh, that's shown some variable success, but certainly that can prevent fracture of the UIV. Um, tethering of the adjacent segments, again, some variable results there, but I think with a good tethering strategy, we can reduce ligamentous failure. With a good cementous strategy, we can reduce cement failures, uh, but we haven't got a single approach that's reliably uh, preventing this. Well, that's really fascinating. Well, hopefully we'll make big inroads into this in the future. Mm -hmm.